We're on question 52, which is the last question in the second commandment. Of course, this is our shorter catechism series. And before we go to look at this question 52, let's look at the other questions and review them that have to do with the second commandment. So first we'll begin with question 49, where it is asked, which is the second commandment? The second commandment is, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Question 50. What is required in the second commandment? The second commandment requireth the receiving observing and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God hath appointed in his word. Question 51. What is forbidden in the second commandment? The second commandment forbiddeth the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. Now, the question then that we're looking at today, question 52, has to do with the reasons annexed or added to the second commandment. God has been very gracious in giving us the commandments, not only to give us commandments, but also reasons to help us keep them. We need all the help that we can get when it comes to help for keeping the commandments, and he's, he, he's not only given us the commandments in the first place where he spells out things that he could say, well, you ought to know that anyway. Why do I need to tell you that? Like, why do we need to be told you shall not kill and such things? So he does that in his mercy to us. But then he also does what he does here in the second commandment. And he adds things to, to move us, motivate us more to keep the commandments. He knows our weakness. And so he does what he can to help us. So let's confess question 52 together. What are the reasons annexed to the second commandment? The reason annexed to the second commandment are God's sovereignty over us, his propriety in us, and the zeal he hath to his own worship. This answer is rooted in the part of the second commandment that says, For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. When he calls himself the Lord, he says, I am the, I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. When he says the Lord, as we saw in the introduction to the commandments, the preface of the commandments, it refers to his sovereignty over us. So that's repeated again, that, that he is the Lord, the, the Lord thy God. He is the self-existing one, you remember, who rules over all. He has all authority in heaven and earth. He's Lord of all. Then when it calls him our God, it refers to him, as you will recall, the relationship that he has established with us as his people. So that we can say he is my God in a way that he's not the God of others. He's our God in the way of being the one who has 
restored us to be his people. I will be your God, you will be my people. That's the essence of his covenant promise all the way through the Bible. So we worship him as his people, as we learn from the second commandment, because he is the Lord who has all authority, we worship him without idols in the way that he's appointed. And then because he's our God, we worship him because he's our God. We don't worship another God or the way that another God wants, but in the way that he wants. And then when he says here, he adds to that, I am jealous. It speaks of his zeal for his own worship. He is jealous when we worship idols. We will look at all these, uh, we'll look at these three things, his sovereignty over us, his propriety in us, and the zeal he has to his own worship a little bit later on in our study here. But first I want you to notice how when God is giving us reasons for keeping the second commandment, he speaks of us as those who either hate him or those who love him. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? Like we're talking about idolatry, that we either love him or we hate him. And as we go on in our scripture reading from the New Testament, I want you to see what idolatry is rooted in. Idolatry is rooted in the hatred of God. And that becomes very clear here. Why do we deviate from the worship that God has appointed for us? Because we hate God. Let's look at this from God's word. It's Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And I'll read to verse 32. Romans 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. So they have an intrinsic knowledge of God, an innate knowledge of God. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves." who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind, to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, 
They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteousness of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. May the Lord God bless the reading of his holy word. Now, I want to begin by showing you that idolatry is an expression of man's hatred for God. It's clear in that passage, isn't it? Look at how Romans 1 shows this. First, it shows that the reason we make images of God is because we don't like the truth about God. We've, we've seen this somewhat as we've studied this commandment. So this is somewhat review to lay the foundation of, of uh, these reasons that are annexed to this commandment. We don't like things about him, so we choose to think of him and represent him the way we want him to be representative instead of the way he is. In verse 18, it says that we suppress the truth about God. We do that even in our worship, you see. We, we modify how God's going to be presented. In verse 28, it explains that we do this because we don't like to retain uh, God in our knowledge. Not at least without some modifications. That's how it begins. We want to modify. We modify him because we don't like him. That means we hate him. The problem is not that we're lacking information about God. Verse 19 says that God has revealed himself clearly enough. Verse 20 explains that since the world was created, it's easy for us to see his eternal power and his divine nature, his Godhead. The problem is not that we lack information, but that we don't like him the way he is. Again, we hate him. You can see how the modification work is described. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man in birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. We make him out to be a creature, a created thing like us, an image made like corruptible man man that dies, or like a bird, or an animal. We want to humanize God. We want to creatureify God, make him less powerful, make him more limited, or make him limited, and less holy. You can see this all through history. After the flood, everyone knew the true God. You had no one in his family. But soon, They had come up with multiple gods in their scheme of things that were in competition with each other. You see, that weakened having one true God who is overall. Now you've got multiple gods that you can kind of pit against each other. It was alleged that these gods had sent the flood because the people were too noisy or because they were not giving them enough sacrifices and they were hungry. These people still had a flood sent by an angry deity, you see. They still had that. They retained that part of the story. But now they had uh, creaturefied him to be a deity that they could be a lot more comfortable with. He wasn't quite so powerful. They were moving away from the true God. And now he was a God also who was irritated rather than a holy God. You didn't give me my supper, and I needed my supper. I was hungry for my supper, you know, whatever. So you've got a God now that's 
more like corruptible man than like God. You can see how people make these kinds of changes about Jesus. Mainline denominations look at him now as a good man, a man who sets an example for other people, a man who sinned, but not as much as other people, maybe. And he is not looked at as the eternal son of God who became flesh. They believe that Jesus sinned when he was on earth, that he was more like we are. See, they don't like to have someone that doesn't sin. It's, it's uncomfortable. Someone who's holy. You can see why sinners would want to creatureify God. It's, it's just because they are sinners. He's the all-powerful judge of all the earth. He's holy. He hates sin. I don't like that. So let's kind of bring him more to be like us. Soften him up. Reduce him. He is, in our opinion, as he is, too holy, too righteous, too just, too angry with sin, too wise, too powerful. You don't like that. The root of idolatry is what? Hatred of God. That's why God refers it to it, refers to it that way. And the primary act of idolatry now that Jesus has come is what? The rejection of the gospel. Isn't it weird how Christians don't know the gospel? People that have been baptized, that go to church, you talk to them, they have no idea. Or at least they act like they don't have any idea about their real God. They might say, Jesus died for me. But then when you talk to them a little bit, you realize they don't really have a clue. This is what Romans is all about. The gospel. The theme of the book is found in Romans 1, 16 through 17, the theme of the whole book, where Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. See, these, these guys are ashamed of it. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Paul saying, I don't want to modify the gospel. I like the gospel because it's the power of God to salvation. It saves people. There's nothing else that can save people. He has been renewed in his heart. He knows that. He says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. The way of righteousness is revealed from faith to faith, from one believing person to another person who believes, from faith to faith. As it is written, the just, the righteous, shall live by faith. In this epistle, Paul shows that the only way we can be righteous is by faith. Paul likes that. He, he likes to, for it to be what God does instead of what he does. He shows that we're all sinners who are condemned in God's sight, and the only way is the way of faith in Jesus Christ. That Christ had to fulfill the demands of God's law that we did not and now could not fulfill. On the cross, he paid for our sins, and by his life, he fulfilled all the obedience required of us. It is only by completely trusting in him that you can be forgiven and justified in God's sight. Now, this message offends us, and that's where idolatry comes out in full force. We don't like a God like this, with a gospel like this. The pagans think the cross is foolish. Because why? Their idolatry has led them to accept gods that would never come in the flesh and die for their people. They, they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't, why would they do that? Like they're, they're looking for us to give them stuff. Nor would they really need to anyway because these gods are not holy. They're just irritated. So they don't need to make an atonement for anyone. If they want to accept us, they can accept us without need for an atonement like that. I mean, they, they might want us to give them something to accept them, but it's more like they, they want something from us. And, well, I'll do this for you if you do that. For, you know, that, that kind of a thing. 
As you would expect, as you would also expect, people who are in God's covenant but who are not really born again are, what, offended by the cross. That's what we're taught in the Bible. So the pagans outside, they think, that's just stupid. Why would, why would you have this thing where somebody dies on the cross for you? And, and then the ones in the church, they're offended by the cross. Why? Well, they're more offended than the other because they consider themselves to be pretty good people. I mean, they, they have God's commandments. They go to church. Paul goes in Romans chapter 2 to challenge these people and to show that even though they have the law, they don't keep the law. So they can't go around saying, oh, well, we're, we're the good people. Like we do community service and we, we help people and things like that. In chapter 3, he stresses that both Jew and Gentile are under sin and that the only way to be righteous is to be justified by faith in Christ. So coming to God in any other way than by Christ is idolatry. You're approaching God, you're worshiping God, not in the name of Christ, but in some other way. You modify God to be what you want him to be or what you think he should be, as if you really were able to tell what God should be. You want that burden to to be a designer of God rather than accepting the truth about God. You do this as we have established because you hate him and you don't want to think about him as he is. I was thinking about this this morning when I was getting ready for church and how that, you know, somebody will come and say, oh, well, you know, God shouldn't do that. And you say, OK, well, well, buddy, you, you tell us you tell us how the world should be run. You tell us how God should do things how what God should be like. I don't want to see what their God is like. Well, we see what he's like. He's like the idols that we have, the false religions. I should mention that even believers, though, can struggle with idolatry. In the first stage of idolatry, we're actually trusting Jesus in his righteousness and rejoicing in the gospel, but we're starting to mess around with the ordinances of the gospel because we're a little bit ashamed of the gospel and we want to have some other stuff that's kind of there that's more uh, appealing maybe to to people. We don't, we don't want to offend nominal Christians because they're offended by the cross. And if we have stuff that's just kind of pointing more directly to the cross, that's not going to go over as well. And we don't want to be seen, seen as foolish to the pagans. And so maybe we can do some stuff that will look better to them too. Um, and the truth is, of course, that when we're like that, we're a little bit offended ourselves with the, with the cross. We're, we're not totally offended. We're rejoicing in salvation, but we we, kind of don't like it. We haven't really gotten fully in in accord with it. So how do we mess with the ordinances of the gospel when we're ashamed of the gospel? Well, in preaching, we start to give less emphasis to the parts that offend people, like the teaching about sin or about hell. In ethics, we downplay certain commandments. In the ancient world, they might downplay forgiveness because the Romans thought forgiveness was kind of a thing that you didn't do if you were honorable. Like, why would you forgive someone? Like, there has to be righteousness done. So they actually were opposite to us. They said, oh, you're a wimp if you forgive people. And they they didn't want a God that forgave. Um, Or in our day, of course, it's just the opposite. And we would do things too, like we would be, um, we'd be embarrassed to talk about what the Bible says about sexual immorality, sexual perversity, because people won't like that. In songs of worship, we write our own songs instead of using the ones that God has given us, because we can just include the things that we 
like about God. Maybe there are things that are true about him, but they're selected. You know, it's like going through a buffet and you say, oh, I like this about God and this about God, but oh, I don't want any of that. I don't like that. And we just take this stuff and we, we put it in our, our worship. Things that other people would approve and be comfortable with. Because we're offended by God. We, we hate God, these certain things about him. You know, I, you say that when you're going through the buffet. Oh, I, I hate that. You know, whatever it is, some food that you don't like. That, that's what we do is we're, we're picking. And really what this all boils down to then, and again, this is just that we're beginning. We're suppressing the truth because we hate God. It's not a good road to travel down. That road doesn't lead to good places. And believers can do that. What is God's attitude toward us when we do this? Is his people. What is his attitude? Well, as he tells us in the second commandment, it fills him with jealousy. Understand that jealousy is not always wrong. We always see it in its worst way in the way it is in humans sometimes. But in fact, it can be a noble virtue. We see it where somebody, you know, applied for a job, they applied for a job, they got the job, and we're jealous because, well, why is the job? They're not, you know, they don't do as well as I do. That, that kind of jealousy. It's not, not a noble virtue in that way. But it's a very noble virtue in God. And we can see it in human relations too. If a man sees another man making moves toward his wife, or if she is making moves toward another man, it's right for him to be jealous. It would be wise to check up on how he has been treating his wife, of course, if he, if he sees that, that going on. But it's right for him to be jealous because he and his wife are joined by holy matrimony before God. If he were not jealous, it would show that he didn't care about that. He didn't care about the covenant, didn't care about his wife either. That's the kind of jealousy that God has, a righteous jealousy. And what is it based on? He is jealous because when we make idols, we're worshiping something that's not him, something that's an alternative version of him, maybe is a more precise way to say it, because it is still him, but it's distorted. It's not quite right. It's what we came up with. Our love and our praise that should be for him is for this fabricated version of him that we have devised. It'd be like a young woman praising her husband for loving her favorite politician, you know, when her husband can't stand that a politician as opposed to him. And she's going around telling people, oh, my husband, he's such a wonderful fellow. He loves this, uh, this, this politician that I like so much. And, and the husband's like, I don't like him. You know, and she's, she's praising him for something that's not true of him. He's not, not going to like that. It's kind of offensive, isn't it? Well, she likes somebody other than me. <laughs> she likes somebody that has these characteristics rather than me. When we modify God in our praise, we're not loving him with all our heart. When we say that he loves things he doesn't love. Uh, we're not loving him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Instead, we're loving the idol of him that we made up. Very inappropriate. God is worthy of all honor and glory and is reprehensible that we should attempt to change the truth of God into a lie and start to worship what is a creature rather than a creator. According to Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. As he says in the second commandment, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He he has every reason to be jealous and angry because of our idolatry. Now, the wrong in this is all the more clear when we look at how the Lord speaks of himself in the second commandment. 
Consider the significance of what he calls himself here in this phrase, I am the Lord your God. First, he says, I am the Lord. Lord is Yahweh, his covenant name, which speaks of his sovereignty over us, as it says. He is the one who made us and rules over us. We have our being from him. He is the Lord, and we're acting like he's Mr. Potato Head, a God that we can switch around and uh, hang attributes on and characteristics on that he doesn't even possess, just the way we want him to be. No, no, he is the one who is the same from everlasting to everlasting. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It's not for us to make him, to fashion him. He's the one that makes, made us. Who do we think we are to pass judgment on God from our own foolish, limited perspective? We are mere humans. We, we can find fault with each other and with other cultures, as we often do, And if that's true, how can we feel that any human could be a just judge of God? That we're in some position to to pass judgment on him, to suppress truth as it is revealed in his word and make up a different version of him. He is the Lord. He is sovereign. It's inappropriate. Next, in addressing our idolatry in the second commandment, he says, I am your God. Now, I mentioned this in the introduction. God, you will remember in writing these commandments to his covenant people, They are the people that he has called to himself and redeemed out of sin. He has promised to be their God. And in order to make that a reality, he has sent Jesus Christ to die for their sins, to give them the Holy Spirit. He is their God. And for these people, of all people, to be ashamed of God and to be so concerned about what the world or what other Christians that are not really Christians uh, think, they start to join in suppressing the truth of God when they do that. This is reprehensible because he's our God. He has shown such mercy toward us, such grace, such kindness, such unbelievable love, and we're ashamed of him and of his gospel, of what the gospel, we're ashamed of what the gospel reveals about him. It ought not to be so. We of all people ought to love him with all our whole being. He has done all this for us. Paul says what we should all say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Question, can you say that you are not ashamed of the gospel? God is worthy of all honor and glory and praise. He is jealous when we make him out to be different than he is. Now we need to look at what God does to us because of our idolatry. How does he deal with us when we begin this idolatry as his people that I've spoken of, that his people can begin, they get offended and they start to move away. In the second commandment itself, God tells us what he does, that he visits this iniquity, interestingly, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. To visit iniquity means that he comes to punish the iniquity. The second commandment does not tell us how he punishes it. It just tells us that he does punish it because he's a jealous God and will not tolerate us rearranging his face however we want it to be. But what is it about him visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation? What is this? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him? This tells us something about this particular sin of idolatry, of changing the truth 
about God and, and perverting um, his ordinances. It is a sin more than any other sin that affects future generations. It affects our children. Making idols is a very corporate sin. A sin that whole denominations slip into little by little over the years. There is the preaching we have talked about that leaves out certain uncomfortable truths about God. And the congregation's okay with that. They become okay with that. Heard, heard about a, a minister, female woman, a woman that was uh, getting uh, examined in the PCC, Presbyterian Church of Canada. And uh, they, she said that uh, she thought there were many different ways to come to God. And there was a conservative man in the congregation. He said, what about when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life? And her answer was, oh, I don't believe that verse. And she was still ordained. Um, that's idolatry. Or the introduction of songs that men have written in place of the ones that God has given us by divine inspiration or embracing a little pagan spirituality into our worship to make it more exciting or interesting. Whatever. Idolatry is a congregational thing. It's done by congregations and by denominations as they bring people in. They ordain people that are idolaters. They, they don't mind idolatry. They bring idolatrous practices. And then what happens with the children? Okay, they grow up with idolatry. And not, not as severe maybe as the one I was just talking about. We're talking about some creeping idolatry, some little things. Whatever degree it's found. And those children, what do they usually do with that idolatry? They embrace it. They have no problem, it seems. Children don't have any problem embracing idolatry that they're brought up in. They do not typically repent of their father's sins in this regard. But instead, they continue in the trajectory of re-imaging God until, as we read in Judges, what happened? A generation grew up who did not know the Lord anymore. We're not talking about the ones that rebelled and that left the church here, but the ones who stayed in. We're talking about them. Let me tell you that this is why there are so many churches so many churches like the one I grew up in that do not preach or believe the gospel and that are tolerant of everything from homosexuality to the denial of Jesus' deity. Idolatry is a sin that is passed on through the generations from parents to children. And each generation takes another step. But does this mean that the children cannot repent of this sin? Of course it doesn't. In Ezekiel 18, God scolds his people for saying that it is that way, that the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. By that, they meant something that was actually true in a certain way, that they were suffering because of what their parents had done. They were in exile. I, mean, I was, you know, they'd say, oh, I was born in exile. My parents, they were worshiping idols. And now we're in exile and here I am, I'm born here. I have to live in the exile. It's not fair. And it was true enough, you know, that they were in the exile during that 70-year period that God was punishing them as a nation. But God makes it clear to them, these children, that if they repent of their father's sin, he'll forgive them. He'll receive them. The reason they were not finding his mercy is because they were continuing in the idolatry of their fathers. In Ezekiel 18, 14, the Lord says, if a man begets a son who sees all the sins which his father has done 
and considers but does not do likewise, so he turns from them, who has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted the high places, right? Nor lifted his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel. And then verse 17 goes on. He shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. So the second commandment speaks of what happens when children simply continue in the sins of their fathers, which is what they usually do. But if they repent, God will welcome them. He'll receive them. Some of you in this congregation have done that. You grew up in a kind of a church situation and it was full of idolatry. And you came to the true gospel and you came to the uh, not, not being ashamed of the gospel. You repented and, and kind of started fresh. You embraced the true God and left the idolatry of your parents. So you see that God visits iniquity of the fathers upon the children. And now I want to show you that what he does to punish people for this sin. The second commandment does not tell us what he does, right? We just saw who he does it to. But how does he punish them? What does he do? Well, that's where we go to Romans 1. We learn from Romans 1. Romans 1 says that the Lord turns us over to our idolatry. The first thing that happens is we start to believe the lies that the present generation is telling us about God. We start to believe the face that they put on Mr. Potato Head was the actual face of God. That that's what God's really like. This is described in verses 21 through 23 where it says, Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Over time, they start to believe their own lies. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. People really start to believe that God is like the idol that they pretended him to be at first. First, they knew, okay, the generation that first did that, they knew, oh, I know what God is really like, but I just am going to kind of not talk about that. I'm going to kind of mask that because I'm a little bit ashamed that God is like that. I know he's like that, but, but you know, I'm uncomfortable with it. So you just suppress a few things about him that they're embarrassed about and they don't really want to retain in their knowledge about, they don't want to think about too much. Then after a while, you see, maybe the next generation, they start to believe that version of God. And even that generation can start to believe it after a while. You see people change, don't you, like that? It's a terrible punishment. Turns them over to believe lies when they had once known the truth. It's very, very sad. That's where the children come in. Their parents who know the truth but don't like it teach the children truth that is modified. And the children believe that this modified truth is the truth. They think God really is like the idol. The result They worship a distorted image of God instead of God. It's often the case that they also add a few more distortions that they know are not really true. Things that they know this is not the way God is, but we're more comfortable with God. So I'm not going to talk about those, even though I know they're true. So then what happens? The older generation shakes their head and says, uh, Oh, and talks about, you know, oh, I don't know what this new generation is coming to. Where did they learn that pattern? 
that you suppress what you don't like. You say, yeah, but we wouldn't, we, we wouldn't go that far. Oh, oh, so you just suppress a few things. But you see, they grew up with what you had suppressed. And so now they're just suppressing a few things too. And it goes on down the road. But, 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 they're, you know, they're, they're, they're actually going and marching in the gay pride parade. You know, we, we would never have done that. Yeah, but what did you do? You, you, you stopped talking about the wrath of God. You stopped talking about the holiness of God. Oh, yeah, but, but we were just reaching the people that were in our community, and it was more effective when we, we got more people in the church. And, you, know, you, you see where it goes. The next generation believes the deeper distortions of their parents. And then they add more, and it keeps going. The dreadful outcome is that God delivers us over to believe the lies that we have been telling about him. That's what it says in Romans 1. Our foolish heart is darkened, and we change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. It's a terrible judgment. Talk about destroying your relationship with God. It takes away Jesus Christ, our Savior, from us. But there is more that the Lord does to punish us for our idolatry. He also turns us over to moral degradation. Look at Romans 1.24 and following. We read this before, but I want to read it again with, with comments. I want you to notice how it says that God gave them over to this behavior as a punishment. Like giving someone over to death or giving them over to the sword. He, he, he delivers them over to it as a punishment. People think sometimes when they're going off into sin that they're kind of getting some over on God. No, it's God is, he's, it's like he's sending you off to prison and to, to death as you go there, to blindness, like you're walking into blindness. Look, look at Romans one twenty four. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts. Okay, so they had these lusts and God said, okay, like if you're, you, you've rejected me and my way, just go on. To, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. You see the sexual perversion. It's, it's not, sexual perversion is not liberation. That's what the world calls it. That's the euphemism. It's not liberation. It's bondage. God turns them over to dishonorable and filthy conduct because of their idolatry. That's why they get so offended when you tell them that it's filthy and that it's abominable because they know that it's true. They know something of that. They're trying desperately to deny it and they find it hard to deny it because there's something that they know that this is true. So they get very, very angry. You know that a person is even worse off when they have gotten to where they don't even care anymore. So God, it says for this reason, verse 26, God gave them up to vile passions for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, the men leaving the natural use of the women burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. The penalty is in their own perversity, you see. That's what the penalty is. It wasn't like God sent a fire down on their head or something like that. He just kept turning them over to their own way, to their corruption, blindness, more and more, they ended up addicted to their own corruption. And look at what follows. Verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in the knowledge, 
That is the idolatry. And this is the punishment. Okay? The idolatry, they didn't like to retain God in their knowledge. What's the punishment? God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. They're so turned over to their sin that they don't even care that God is going to punish them and judge them. It's startling how far down they have gone. They who started out being ashamed of God in the earlier generation somewhere are now not ashamed of horrid behavior. Instead of being shamed, they glory in their horrid behavior. They promote it. They approve it. They glory in it. They honor in it. They, they celebrate vileness and perversity. This is the dreadful punishment that God brings upon the children of idolaters. The Lord tells us this for a reason. Because he loves us. And he wants to deter us from going down the pathway of idolatry. I wish I could preach this to the next five generations, to the next 10 or 20 generations, that they would, oh, that they would listen instead of drifting in idolatry. Because I know, like Moses, when he wrote Psalm, I know that you're going to do this in the future generation. You're going to end up, you're going to end up in Babylon. That's basically what he said. This is where you're going. I know this is where you're going. It's very sad. Oh, that we would love God instead of hating him and rearranging his face, that we would love the gospel that saves us and reveals the truth about God to us so that we can know God, so that we can walk with him, so that we can know his love that we're looking at in our morning series now. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's something to delight in. Jesus is someone to love. And the gospel is something to love. And the gospel ordinances that God has given us are to be kept pure and entire. But there is more than a warning attached to the second commandment. And this is the good part. There is also a promise attached to the second commandment. And that's very encouraging. The promise is that God will continue to, that God's grace will continue to a thousand generations. The second commandment says in contrast to this punishment of idolaters, this is Exodus 20 verse 6, But showing mercy to thousands, God says, to those who don't hate me, but who love me and keep my commandments. If we simply continue to love God, to come to him in the way he has appointed through Jesus Christ and his gospel ordinances, then the Lord will graciously keep us even though we are sinners. He will keep on showing his covenant mercy to us as long as the world stands. His grace will continue in unbroken succession until the end of the world. Do you, realize what, do, you, do you realize that this is what he is actually doing? God is actually continuing his grace to a thousand generations. It's true. It's been true ever since God gave Adam and Eve the first hope of the gospel. 
Sometimes it was a pretty thin line that he preserved, like in the time of Noah. But he's always done it. There's an unbroken line of those who worship God in truth. From Abel, who died, to Seth, to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to David, to Jesus Christ, to all those that worship God in the true gospel today. There has never been and there never will be a time when God does not have a people for himself. Even those times when God has had to visit the children of his servants for their idolatry, his mercy is always looming in the background. You see, it's not his wrath that looms in the background, it's his mercy looms in the background. In 1 Kings 15, which we read earlier, it said that even though Jeroboam walked in the sins of his father, yet that God set up his son after him in Jerusalem for the sake of his grandfather, David, the great-grandfather of the, of the lad. So God, God remembered this. And in Romans 11, we're told that even though Israel was largely forsaken, the Lord, by rejecting the gospel, they, they, I mean, they were largely forsaken, they had forsaken the Lord by rejecting the gospel, that God will show mercy to them for the sake of their fathers. This does not mean that those who reject Christ for their idol version of God will uh, not die in their sin. Many times they do die in their sin and they go to hell. But what it means is, is that God will sort of eventually skip, he'll skip over those generations that perished and departed from him, and then he'll bring mercy again to a future generation down the road. Some of you are like that. You find out that you have a, a, a great-grandmother or something that was godly and that prayed for you or you know, that sort of thing. It's very often the case. God's mercy goes on and on to a thousand generations of those that love him. In a thousand generations, that's a good twenty to 30,000 years, something like that. So it's longer than the world has stood so far. Uh, we, it's a pretty, pretty extensive uh, track of mercy. Of course, it's a figurative expression, but it means that as long as the world stands to a thousand generations, his mercy continues. See from this then that God is more zealous to show grace, does that to a thousand generations, than he is to visit iniquity. He does that to the third and fourth generation. When he visits our iniquity, he turns us over to believe our own lies and to walk in our own perverse ways. But when he has mercy, He delivers us and sends his truth so that we worship him as he is in truth. The truth as it is revealed in the gospel to us. That's what the Lord delights in and that's what we should delight in. Away then with Mr. Potato Head God of our imaginations. That's not where we want to go. And on then with the true God who is the father of Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior. Please stand and let's call on his name. Oh, Lord God, we pray that you would help us to continue in the purity of your covenant that you have established with us, a covenant in which you have revealed yourself in your ways and your way of salvation. We pray that we would not turn ourselves over to darkness that, and we would not then be turned over by you to that darkness. We think that we can play around with it. It's like the drug addict that thinks he can enjoy his, his drugs for a while. And then the next thing you know, he's completely entrapped and ensnared. We pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, that you would 
you would prevent us from going down such a pathway. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to continue uh, delighting in the gospel, that we would love you and that we would not be ashamed of it. We have seen how important it is for us to love you in our um, morning sermon series, and we pray, Lord, that, that we would do so because it will be the best antidote for idolatry. If we love you the way we are, then the way, the way you are, I mean, if we love you the way you are, then we're not going to start adjusting you to something that you're not and worshiping that. Lord, we pray that you would deliver those who have been delivered over to bondage. We meet people every day who have uh, embraced some idolatry that distorts and perverts the truth. And we pray that you would help us, Lord, to lead these people and to point them in the way, that, in the way of truth, that they might be able to escape the snare into which that they have been entangled, perhaps for many generations. Lord, we look to you to do the work that only you can do in our midst. We pray for our children, Lord. How we pray that you would preserve them in the generations to come. But Father, it's little use of praying that prayer if we don't pray that you would preserve us from going down an idolatrous pathway because we're the ones that start the ball rolling in that direction if it, if it is to roll in that direction. And we pray, Lord, that you would deliver us from such folly and that we would embrace you fully. Father, there is an animosity that is in all of us. Our flesh wars against the spirit, the remaining corruption that we have in us, and it causes us to want to modify and to just shave off the truth a little bit. And we pray, Lord, that we would not start down that pathway, that you would alert us when we do, and that we would not, for we want to continue. We want our children to continue. We see where this thing leads. You've shown us plainly in Romans 1. And we like to deceive ourselves and think that our idolatry won't lead there, that we'll control it, we'll stop it. But Father, we cannot do so. So we pray for your mercy. We pray for a vigilance, that you would give us vigilance, make us vigilant and watchful that we would not allow this creeping idolatry to overrun us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's a blessing for you that comes from, uh, that's somewhat related to the second commandment. It goes to our, us and to our children. Receive the blessing of the Lord. The Lord bless you out of Zion, and may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Amen.